0: the second half of my interview with Rini Kozlov from KAI. In this episode, she's going to be talking about repeat clients and about the acquisition. It's a fascinating story. Before we do, though, I got a bunch of texts and voicemails about a specific question around Banshee Wines. Hey, Matt, this is Philip Yang, a.k.a. Geeky Yang. Uh, love your podcast so far. Uh, great work. And I was wondering if in the future, would you offer some kind of discounts or maybe even coupons for your listeners for your podcast? Uh, I'd, I'd love to kind of uh, take take a look at the and just kind of try it out. Um, they seem very interesting. Love what they're doing, and you know, I kind of want to get more into to wine and drinking wine as well, learning about the different tastes and flavors. So, just wanted to make a comment about that. As always, pleasure listening to it, and uh, keep up the great work. Thanks. Thanks so much, Philip, for the feedback, and thanks to everybody who texted me. Steve from Banshee was so excited that people wanted to try Banshee Wines, and so he's offered us a 15% discount through June 1st. Thank you so much, Steve. To get the discount code, just text the word WINE, W-I-N-E, to 646-779-1234, and I will send you a link to be able to get 15% off anytime before June 1st. Okay, let's get to the rest of the interview with Rini. Is it different every time for every clinical trial, or some, how much of it gets repeated versus is kind of one-off um, project work?
1: That's a really good question. Um, what we've tried to do um, in an effort to be efficient and cost-effective is to have a core, a core data management uh, system, and that gets customized for each study, but the core is the same. Um, The programming, the big programming has been done, and now it's a matter of customizing it to the client and to the study. Some clients want the database to look exactly the way they want it to look. They don't want it to look like what we think is the right way to do it, and so that requires a lot of programming. Um, Other times they say, that's great, customize it in some minor ways and then of course you always have to customize it to um, the disease and the protocol itself so it's, it's sort of a combination and, and sometimes it's really creative and sometimes it's not
0: Do you get a lot of repeat clients or is it how does that work?
1: Well that's an interesting question too because they're small to mid-sized companies and they don't have a big pli- pipeline Um, very often um, they develop a drug for a particular purpose, and uh, if they're smart, they'll try and get it to have what the FDA calls orphan drug status, um, which allows it to be developed faster and get into the market faster. That means, orphan drug means that there are no um, other good treatments for whatever that disease is. So for some of the rare diseases, for some of the terminal diseases, those drugs are orphan drugs. They get, they get done really quickly. Um, so they get a drug. They develop it. It's their only drug. They develop it. FDA approves it for that purpose. But now that drug can be used for several other purposes. And in order to be able to label it with that, those other purposes to do another clinical trial. That's the repeat business.
0: So I'm picturing there are a bunch of companies. Some of them make one drug every five years. Some make 20 drugs every year. Right. If they make 20 drugs every year, I would imagine they would constantly be coming back and saying we need more. We if they're need making more. 20
1: drugs a year, and they need a bigger company okay. than mine. How many studies, studies you? do you do a year? We could do... Well, not all studies are created equal. A phase one is very different from a phase three. It's very different from a phase four. So it really depends on the mix. But probably 12 is the number, I would say, that's reasonable for 90 people to do a year. And remember, they're all in different stages of development. So in the first three months or four months of development, it's very intense. After that... It coasts along. If it's a private sector study, it's going to only last two or three years. If it's a government study, it's going to last five to seven years. And by the way, that's the reason, from a business point of view, to have the mix. Right? Federal government studies for five to seven years. Farmer, are two to three years. Nice to have the steady flow of income from the federal government.
0: That's interesting. I had... I was thinking about the studies lasting a much shorter period of time, so you would need more repeat customers, uh-huh. but really one drug can can last for either between three and seven years, yes. depending.
1: Yes Yes. Now there are some studies um, not too many that are under a year. We've had some that are under a year, but but generally they're not. The phase ones might be because you only need 10 subjects um, or 20. And you can do that in under a year. But that's the limiting factor. The setup is six to eight weeks. The management of the study is as long as it takes to recruit as many participants or subjects in the study that you need. And then the closeout, the statistical analysis and finishing everything up, is is another two to three months. So the, the bulk of it is recruiting people into the study. And keeping them in
0: until they finish the study. So you recently sold the business. Yes. And in the, the reason I bring that up now is because as we talk about the different lengths of number of customers you have and number of studies going on, I want to get in a moment to when you started the business, which was a while ago. Mm-hmm. When you sold the business... Who was the company who acquired it? Okay, okay. so the
1: company that acquired it is a not-for-profit research institute called Altarum Research Institute out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. They um, historically have done clinical care research, not drug development research. And so we were a little piece of their pie that they didn't have, a little sliver of the pie that they didn't have most of their clients were federal government, and we were private sector. We had government, too, but not they did not have NIH and CDC and FDA. They had DOD and other federal agencies. So we were a little piece of the pie that they thought might complete their picture.
0: It's interesting that it was a non-profit, because in my head, I don't think about not-for-profits acquiring for-profit companies.
1: So they acquired us as a wholly owned subsidiary so that we kept several things. Our name, our small business status, which is a very big plus in the federal government. Um, it enables us to compete on a smaller scale or with, other, with smaller scale companies so we don't have to compete with Harvard University. We do compete with companies that are much larger than us, but they're not as large as that. Um, uh, And the third reason was for the profit center. Um, Pharmaceutical, private sector business is much more uh, profitable than federal government work. And so keeping keeping us as a wholly owned subsidiary enabled them to keep that all
0: separate. How did they think about valuing it? Was it a multiple?
1: (laughs) Okay, so let me me step back a minute, because I think this is interesting. We never um, actively looked to sell the company. Um, In the five years prior to when we actually sold it, we had been approached by many companies. Um, And... um, while we were successful businesswomen in our own little company, we really had no idea about how to value and what what the company was worth. We had no idea, and so the first offer was a million dollars, and we thought, "Oh my God, that's so wonderful!" Not really. Um, and over the over the time, we learned um, this company came to us because for one of our federal contracts, we had to let. We, we were asked to let a smaller contract to do a particular piece of work. And five, 20 companies responded to the request for information, and we selected five of them to actually give us a proposal and a bid. And Altarum was one of those companies. And they did not win the bid, but they really liked us. And very soon after, they came to us and said, are you interested in selling the business? And that's, that's when it really started working. So how did we value it? Again, we had no idea. So we did two very important things. We had a very good um, mergers and acquisitions attorney. And secondly, we had um, an official valuation of the company.
0: Like an outside audit.
1: An outside audit,
0: right. And when they're doing that, is that... They're taking a bunch of all the revenues and adding them up for the year and multiplying that out and saying what's the growth been over the the last period of time? Or is it more, I guess, what were the pieces that were surprising, the things that that really added a lot of value or the things that didn't add a lot of value? How did that kind of work?
1: Um, Well, that, you know, I'm not sure I can give you the right kind of information about that. That is not my expertise, but here's my understanding of it Um, accounts receivable. Right? How much how much money have outstanding, how many contracts you have signed, even if they haven't started yet. Sort
0: of indicate future growth.
1: Right. You need to have a pipeline, right? Because they want to make back the money they pay you in whatever they decide is the right amount of time, which is I think in their case was I remember, I think five years. That was their the buyer's goal. Um, and so they look so. So then, there's a formula that takes into account how much money you have in the bank, um, um, what your expenses are, obviously, um, what the pipeline looks like, what you have active now, and then what the five-year pipeline looks like.
0: And maybe they right? discount that five-year
1: pipeline by some probability and time. Absolutely, And then, of course, historically, you look historically at what happens to the pipeline because it is very unpredictable in several respects. The FDA can say, no, you can't move ahead with that trial. The FDA can say, yes, you can move ahead with the trial. And then manufacturing doesn't happen. So there are lots of factors. Uh, the other very important one is that your competitor gets to trial first or gets to approval first, and say, "I'm not going to invest the money to go after it." So there are, you know, those moving parts which, which retrospectively, you can get a, a fix on. And then the other intangible, which was um, a negative, was the fact that my business partner and I have a very strong reputation in the field. And what would happen when we left? So how much of the business was known for the business and how much of that was because of us? And that actually decreased the value of the company.
0: That's really interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they were very clear about that.
0: Were they clear about it in the context that they wanted you to stay for a period of time or just clear about it as this is, this is how we're thinking about it?
1: Well, um, the... The, the uh, agreement was for us to stay for two years full-time. After that, it was going to be negotiable, and we ended up, both ended up staying two years part-time, half-time. Um, but it, it was just a fact. They were, they were going to discount it because so much of the business was because of us.
0: And is that they, the auditors, or that independent party, or is that they, the potential buyers?
1: They had their own audit, right? So we had an audit. To satisfy ourselves as to what the value of the company was, and they had an audit, you know, to get their own perspective, and it was their auditor who, who required requested the discount or said it was appropriate.
0: Did you have other potential acquirers, or was this really we really like them, they really like us? Let's see if we can make something happen just with the two of us, or did you have other suitors? At
1: the same time? Uh, Not at the same time. But immediately prior to that, we had a very aggressive suitor um, who didn't evaluate the company as high as the eventual um, buyer. But we really liked them, and um, we didn't know that we were going to get a better bid. um, And we literally were a week before signing. And they invited us to um, their retreat, their company retreat. And we spent two days at the company retreat and looked at each other and said, there is no way that the culture of this company and the culture of KAI can ever be merged. It was a military-based company. It was all male. It was culturally... As different from Kai as it could have been, and we did not, and we walked away. So that was about a year before this took place.
0: Wow! So was that a, a real consideration for you? is kind of thinking about how this business lives on once you all move back to part time and
1: yeah, um, yes, it certainly was. But more to the staff, there was a very definite culture. Um, it was very female and very um, loyal and committed.
0: That's K I you're K-I.
1: About. And it was very important to us that there be an appreciation of that. That um, it's very clear that the people we trained who were very smart, very talented, could go to pharma and make a lot more money. And yet they stayed with us. And it was because of the culture, because of the sense of um, belonging, of um, respect, of um, opportunity, all of those things. And they stayed. So it was really important to us that the company that acquired us would appreciate it. Um, And so that's why we could not go through with that initial deal. And this one felt better.
0: Was there anything in particular that made it feel better?
1: I think it was not only the principals of the principal people of the company, but the other people that we met. Um, We did actually have an an opportunity to go to their retreat, and it felt much better. Um, There was a much broader mix. There was more diversity um, in every respect. There were more females. There were more um, minority People, they were more young and old and in between. And it just it just felt better. It felt like a better fit.
0: That's interesting because it, what it means, the way I read that is, it was actually a competitive advantage for that company to be more diverse because it attracted, it, it ultimately made them more attractive as a potential acquirer.
1: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And they had come back... Com- Compatible skills, not duplicative, and that was also very appealing because that meant that they wouldn't acquire us and then get rid of half of our staff because we have those people. And that was important. You know, people have been very loyal to us. We're not going to abandon them.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking some time and talking about it.
1: My pleasure. It was fun. I haven't had a chance to talk about it in a long time. All right. Well, thanks so much.
0: Thanks. That concludes our interview with Rini. Thank you so much for listening. Please leave me a voicemail with any comments or analysis about the episode at 646-779-1234. If you leave me a message, I will include it in the debrief episode. You can also text me at that number. The most helpful thing you can do is to tell your friends about the podcast so I can keep it going. On the internet, I'm at Matt Hartman on Twitter, and the podcast is at Podcast. And the website is dybpodcast.com. Thank you again for listening. I really appreciate it. Talk soon.